0: ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 100. That's Psalm 100. Now, as you may recall, on Sunday nights since uh, uh, November, we have been engaged in a series of studies on various psalms. Each of the ministers has taken an opportunity to pick out a psalm and preach from that psalm. When we decided to do this series, one of the reasons we chose this subject... It's because we realized as preachers, we hadn't done very many sermons that just focused on psalms. And so we chose to challenge ourselves by preaching from a book of the Bible that we don't normally stick to, at least for the entirety of a sermon. Tonight, I want to look at Psalm 100. And I believe that next to Psalm 23, which is the most obvious, well-known Psalm in the entire book that Psalm 100 would likely make the top five of most well known Psalms. Primarily because, as you've seen this evening, thanks to Andrew, this psalm makes its way into several of our hymns, several of the songs that we sing. And so tonight, I want to spend some time with this beautiful five verse psalm known to us as Psalm 100. his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. I love Psalm 100. And, and before I spent time studying this particular psalm, I just saw it as this beautiful call to worship. But after spending time with it, I think there's more to it than just this call to worship. I think underlying it is a deep theology about worship. We'll get to that in just a moment, but I want three observations about this psalm just as a little bit of a background for you before we get started. The first thing I like to note is that there is a superscription assigned to this psalm. I didn't read it as part of our scripture reading just because I wanted to highlight it here at the start. When we say there's a superscription that's the term used for that little statement that's usually italicized before the first verse. In Psalm 100 you'll notice that probably before verse 1 or under some heading, you have this phrase, a psalm for giving thanks, or a psalm of thanksgiving. That is a, a, a superscription attached to this psalm when the book was compiled. Now, it may not have been added by the original author of Psalm 100, which is anonymous, but it was added by the time whoever compiled all 150 psalms together put those in book form. And so it is part of the canonical text of Psalms. It's not some translator's edition. It belongs in there. In fact, if you were to read a Jewish Bible, that little superscription would have its own verse because it's part of the text. There's about 116 of the 150 Psalms that have such a superscription. And they tell us something about about that particular psalm. And what's so very interesting to me is that Psalm 100 superscription is very generic, very simplistic, but it's also very unique. It is the only psalm in the, excuse me, it, it is the only super, the, the only psalm in the entire book of Psalms that has this specific superscription. And it seems that's such a basic Uh, basic identifier. You would think many psalms would be referred to as a psalm of thanksgiving, but this is the only one. It doesn't mean it's the only psalm that speaks about thanksgiving. It just means it's the only one with this specific title on the front end. Another interesting thing about this psalm is the fact that it's completely unoriginal. What I mean Well, let me explain what I mean by quoting to you from Eddie Kloer's commentary on this psalm. He says, Although Psalm 100 has a freshness to its arrangement, its contents are almost totally borrowed. Every thought it presents is found somewhere else in the book of Psalms in virtually the same language. Every statement in this five verse psalm can be located somewhere else in the book of Psalms. I find that fascinating. For instance, you can look at the the phrase, make a joyful noise. You can find it repeated in Psalm chapter 95 in verse 1 and verse 2, as well as Psalm 98 verse 4 and verse 6. The instruction to serve the Lord is found in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 11, and it's based actually off of something said in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 47. The come into his presence phrase is found in Psalm 95 and verse 2. The know that the Lord, he is God terminology is strikingly similar to Psalm chapter 46 and verse 10 where we're told to be still and know that the Lord is good. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise shares a lot in common with Psalm 116 and verse 19 as well as one, chapter 118 and verse 19. And phrases like, Give thanks to Him and the Lord is good are so abundant in psalms that I didn't even take time to count their corollaries. And then you can even get to the descriptions of God. In verse 5, The Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, His faithfulness to all generations. Those phrases are repeated with such frequency you can't keep up with them. This psalm is borrowing terminology from all the other psalms. Now, it may have preceded those psalms. We don't know where chronologically it would fit. But there is nothing you'll read in this psalm that you can't read somewhere else. It's just compiled into this beautiful arrangement that presents this amazing understanding of what we're going to talk about this evening. But there's one final thing I want you to know about this psalm. It's worth mentioning that Psalm 100 is the last of a collection of psalms that are commonly referred to as the royal psalms. From Psalm chapter 95 through 100, you have a set of psalms that are known as the royal psalms. There are many collections of psalms that are designed to accomplish two things. To remind the nation of Israel that their God reigns despite all appearances to the contrary, and to remind the nation of Israel of their responsibility to praise him, so that the whole world might know about his reign. So if you go back to Psalm 95, it declares in verse 3, The Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. It cites his reign. It communicates that he reigns. And then it goes on to instruct its readers to sing to the Lord and make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 96 calls on the reader in verse 10, To say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And it instructs its readers to sing to the Lord, to bless his name, and to tell of his salvation. Psalm 97 begins with the declaration that the Lord reigns, so let the earth rejoice. And it ends with an instruction to rejoice in the Lord and give thanks to his holy name. In Psalm 98, It accomplishes both the purposes of declaring God's reign and instructing God's people to praise him in one single verse, verse 6, where it instructs the reader to make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. And then Psalm 99 begins with the words, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. And then instructs its readers to exalt the Lord our God and to worship at his footstool. The point is that Psalm 100 is the last of a series of psalms that are designed to declare that God reigns and designed to tell His people to praise Him. And it fits in that unique genre, if you will, of psalms known as the Royal Psalms from Psalm 95 through 100. That's a little bit of background on this psalm that I found interesting and I think helps us understand and appreciate this psalm more. But now I want to talk about the text of the psalm, because Psalm, as I've said, Psalm 100 serves kind of like a theology of worship, centered around seven imperative phrases that command us to do something related to worship. And what I want to do is simply highlight the seven commands that you're going to find in Psalm 100 and how they relate to our understanding and appreciation of the worship of God. The first command you'll notice is the command to shout joyfully. Now, in the English Standard Version, it says make a joyful noise to the Lord, which I appreciate because that's about all that's coming out of my mouth when I sing. But in all actuality, the terminology being used here is a declaration to shout. You'll see shout used in the New American Standard Version, the New International Version, and the New King James Version. And they convey what the psalmist is really instructing us to do with that word, shout. The reason shout is a better translation is because the Hebrew term pictures an intense, energetic expression. As one commentator said, there is nothing polite or moderated about this call to praise. The worshiping community is to hold nothing back in their praise of Yahweh. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. As the psalmist begins this particular psalm that speaks about praising God, he starts with the word shout. He's calling on his readers to unashamedly, to unabashedly praise God with every fiber of their being. We don't think about shouting when it comes to worship. We feel there needs to be something more dignified, something more respectable, something more formal, but the psalmist has no problem with shouting in worship to God, and you know what? I don't believe the Lord has a problem with shouting as part of worship. You know why? Go back to the Gospels. When Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem, do you know what people did? They shouted at the top of their lungs hosanna we need hey thank you <laughs> dean we hold back so often when it comes to praising god and the psalmist command is a command not to hold back because god deserves every bit of the praise we can offer. See, when we start filtering through Psalm 100, we're seeing this theology, this mindset we should have towards the praise of God. And the very first thing that stands out is that our worship should be passionate, should be unabashed, should be unconcerned with embarrassment and shame because of who we're praising, not because of how we're praising. You continue on in this psalm, and you get to the second verse, and the second command that appears here is the command to worship with gladness. Now, I just used the word worship, and you're sitting there probably looking at your text and going, I don't have the word worship in verse 2. If you're using the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, the King James Version, or the New King James Version, you're going to see the word serve. But the idea here has to do with worship. Let me appeal to Brother Eddie Clower one more time from his commentary. He says the word used here is not the typical word for worship. It is a word that is used for the labor of a slave. However, it is adapted from its normal use and used as a figurative characterization of the worship that is to be given. In other words, there seems to be an intentional blurring of the lines between worship and service by the author here. And I think that's because, as one commentator said, every act of worship is, is an act of service. And every act of service done for the Lord is an act of worship. I don't want to dissect that statement too much. You could could put holes through it all day long. But ultimately, when we worship God, what we're doing is engaging in an act of service. And when we serve the Lord in any capacity, we're glorifying Him Remember what Jesus said about being lights in the world? In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, you are the light of the world. And what's the purpose of being a light? So that people will glorify Him. So that people will glorify God. Everything we do in His name is intended to bring glory to Him and therefore has an aspect to it. It is worshipful in some capacity. Now, there is a distinction between the formal act of worship with the elements that are mentioned in Scripture and the informal act of worship that can be evidenced in the everyday life. But ultimately, when we consider the command here in Psalm 100 verse 2 to serve the Lord or worship the Lord with gladness, what we're seeing is a theology of worship That understands that it must extend from the formal gathering into the personal living. That our worship of the Lord is not confined and limited to the assemblies of the church. That it must be part of our everyday life. And so the question you have to ask yourself is Does God receive praise? and glory, and honor, and exaltation from me, Monday through Saturday, just as much as he does on Sunday. Maybe not in the same methodology, but in the same degree. Because God deserves worship constantly. Now we come to verse, the second half of verse 2 where the instruction is to come into his presence with thanksgiving. Or, excuse me, with singing. This command reminds us that our worship involves approaching God. To come into his presence. This particular command should humble us. It should give us pause to reflect on the fact that when we enter into worship, We are ultimately entering into the presence of God. That was something the Israelites were constantly reminded of. When they went to the temple to worship God, they were looking directly at a building that housed the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God among them. You know, when God ordered the tabernacle's construction, which was the precursor to the temple... He said, let the Israelites make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Every time they went to that structure, they were reminded of the Lord's presence. They were reminded that they were approaching him. And it should be humbling for us to remember that we are entering the presence of the one who instructed Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5 to remove his sandals because the place on which you are standing is holy ground and the one from whom Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God in verse 6 of the same chapter. We should be humbled by whose presence we are entering when we worship. But we don't have to fear entering his presence. Because as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 15 says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted as we are yet without sin. So since Jesus is our great high priest, the author of Hebrews says in verse 16 of Hebrews 4, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, we notice here in Psalm 100 that the third command is to come into his presence, and that calls to mind the fact that we are approaching the creator of the world. We are approaching the almighty God. but We're also reminded that our approach is, is possible because the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and died for us. And so this command indicates that our worship should be mindful of our approach, but our approach can be confident. Our approach can be fearless. Our approach can, in fact, be bold. And that leads us to verse 3 of Psalm one hundred. Where the fourth command appears, and the command there is to know that he is God. I believe the point is that of this command is that the worship of God is to be entered with understanding and knowledge of who he is and of what he requires. Notice those things we are instructed to know in verse 3. We are instructed to know that he is God. That he made us, that we are his people. This is a summons to wrap our minds around his role as creator, his role as father, his role as shepherd. In other words, our worship must be entered into within an appreciation of his place and our place. He is the creator, we are the created, he is the father. We are the children. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. When we worship with the right awareness of who he is and who we are, then we can worship in spirit and in truth because only then is our worship not about us. When we worship knowing who he is, we stop worrying about all the little minor intricacies of worship, particularly when uh, when it comes to our formal assembly of If we worship knowing who God is and who we are, guess what? We stop caring about how many verses are sung. We stop caring about whether or not it's new songs or old songs. We stop caring about how long it goes. We stop caring about those things that don't really matter. Because guess what? All that matters is that He gets glory. If we know who He is and who we are, that becomes the focus rather than all the other things. And this might just be the most important command of this entire song. As one author said, this command is the focal statement of the psalm because there are three imperatives that precede it shout, worship, and come. And there are three imperatives that follow it enter, give thanks, and praise. Thus, he concludes, that makes this command, this command to know God the pivot around which the others revolve. And what this command does for us in our theology and understanding of worship is that it reminds us that worship must be intentional. It must be about Him. It must be intentional. In verse 4, we receive the command to enter His gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. This command reminds the readers of the temple. The gates refer to the entrances to the temple courts through which all of the Israelites would have to walk in order to approach the temple. This terminology serves as a reminder of that physical structure to which all the children of Israel would go to worship. And that physical structure was required under Mosaic law, was commanded by God under Mosaic law. And it limited God some degree, to one location. If you wanted to worship God under Mosaic law, you had to go to that physical location where priests could intercede and sacrifices could be offered. But in the New Testament, the temple language is transferred onto the body of Christ and its individual members. In 1 Corinthians, the church is identified as God's temple in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And the human body is identified as God's temple. In chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. And what that change in terminology conveys is that we can now enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise anytime and anywhere because we're not restricted to a physical location anymore. And this unrestricted opportunity for worship is especially evident when you consider Paul's instructions 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16 17 and 18 where he says rejoice always pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you so when you reflect on this command to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And it calls to mind the temple structure. And you realize that you, as a child of God, are that temple now. It should serve as a reminder that your worship should be constant and continuous, just as Paul calls for it to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And that brings us to the last two commands which both appear in the, at the end of verse 4. The command to give thanks and to praise his name. I link these two together because they are sort of synonyms for each other. And these two commands are not new to Psalm 100. They've been ordered countless times throughout Scripture. So the thing that's really important to notice when you get to this part of the psalm isn't so much the commands themselves, but the reasons for these commands. Notice there in verse 5, the psalmist gives the reasons for giving thanks and blessing or praising his name. And the reason is first because the Lord is good. If you journey through the book of Psalms, God's goodness is lauded Over and over and over. Good and upright is the Lord. For you, O Lord, are good. For the Lord is good. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Just some of the phrases you'll run across in the book of Psalms. But nowhere is God's goodness better explained than by his own son. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 18 and Luke chapter 18 and verse 19. In those parallel passages, Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. In other words, Jesus holds up God as the standard, as the definition, as the epitome of goodness. Because by comparison, no one else is good. It's so easy for us to wrap our minds around God is love. He's the definition, the standard bearer of love. But when you go to his word, he's identified as the definition of, the standard bearer of goodness as well. The psalmist is saying that we should give thanks and praise him because he's the standard of goodness. But the psalmist also identifies his steadfast love that terminology could actually be could also be translated mercy his mercy endures forever here's the beautiful thing about god's love and god's mercy is that there's there's no end to it he never runs out of it we've experienced here where there's a lot of things we can run out of Since the pandemic started, we've run out of random things, like turkey sausage. I've had a hard time finding turkey sausage. Isn't that random? We've had shortages of building materials. We've had shortages of painting supplies. We've had shortages of fuel we've had shortages of toilet paper but you'll never have a shortage of God's love you never have to fear that and, and, and because God's love and God's mercy is abundant in supply he deserves our praise and our thanks and you'll notice the third reason the psalmist gives for praising and thanking God, and it has to do with his faithfulness. God is the greatest promise keeper ever. There's not a promise he's ever backed out of. There's there's not a promise he's failed to keep. There's not a promise that he's ever abandoned or taken back. God has kept every promise he's ever made. I wish I could say the same, don't you? You ever broken a promise you made to somebody? I don't think I've ever hurt Micah the way I did one time when I promised to get her ice cream and something came up and I didn't take her. She didn't let me live that one down for a long time. God doesn't break promises. God keeps every promise he makes because he's faithful even when we are faithless. And the psalmist says that's another reason to give him thanks and to praise his name. See, when you come to the end of this psalm and the last two commands to give thanks and to praise his name, and you notice the basis for those, you complete this observation of why we worship. We worship because God deserves our praise. This evening we turn to Psalm 100 It's this beautiful short psalm packed with so much richness. So much theology that might go overlooked. It really outlines worship in a way that we may not think about all the time. And I hope our study tonight may have contributed to a better appreciation of this psalm. But let me close with this final thought. Yesterday we spent a day exchanging gifts with one another. We had the opportunity to bless one another's lives by giving something to each other. The greatest gift that's ever been given was not given yesterday. It was given nearly 2,000 years ago when Christ gave up his life at Calvary. God gave first when he gave his son. And all he really asks for in return is for us to give him our worship. So as you sit on this day where you have just spent many hours emphasizing gifts, consider the importance of the gift you have to give God every day. And that is the worship, the praise, the glory, the exaltation that he deserves. This evening, if in hearing this lesson, you understand something about what God has done for you. His loving kindness and his faithfulness, he sent his son to die for you. And maybe you've never acknowledged his son's death. Maybe you've never acknowledged his son's identity. Maybe you've never been buried with his son, and you need to make that decision tonight. You can become a child of God by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is his risen son, by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins after you repent of those sins. Maybe you need to make that decision tonight. But maybe as we gather here, our study of Psalm 100 has reminded you of God's call, God's expectation, God's desire for you to honor Him the way that He deserves to be honored, and you recognize you haven't done that. Then tonight we extend this invitation so that if you need to respond in any way and you need to write anything that's wrong in your life, then we won't you come together.